0: The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning and new faces as well. I'd like to welcome you here to Christ the King. If you don't know me, I'm uh, Tobias. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. And uh, this morning, uh, we, we've we come to the end of our series uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, we didn't actually come to the end of Revelation. Uh, maybe we'll do that some other time. We'll see. Um, but we have... Uh, uh, we're um, Last week, uh, Andrew... Um, preached on the sixth letter, the letter to Philadelphia, and, and if you're like me, you might be, you might have pondered that picture of hold fast, if you've seen or read the Patrick O'Brien books, Master and Commander, it's such a great image. This week, um, uh, today, we're looking at the last letter, uh, the seventh letter, the letter to the Laodiceans, and that is in chapter three of the book of Revelation, so I invite you to go ahead and open up there. We're going to look at verses 14 through 22. This is what the ascended Lord Jesus said to the Laodiceans and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh gracious and mighty God uh, we bow before you creator of heaven and earth of all things seen and unseen we bow before you the sustainer and giver of life in whom we live and move and have our being and we confess our neediness to you O oh, father we ask this morning that you will use this letter that you will use it to open our eyes and our ears to the abundant riches that are found only in you. Help us to see that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you will, by your Spirit, penetrate with your word deep down into our hearts. And in doing so, we ask that you will change us, transform us into the people that you have designed us to be. Oh, Father, we ask all these things. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so as as I was uh, reading this letter, thinking about this letter uh, during the week, I know it's a bit out of season, but my mind just kept going uh, to one of the most famous. Literary characters uh, in the West. And I'll just sit there for a moment. I, I, I would love to know who y'all are thinking about, but I, I, won't, I won't ask. My mind went to Ebenezer Scrooge, the famous character in Charles Dickens' play, um, story, A Christmas Carol. And, you know, when we think of Ebenezer Scrooge, I think what oftentimes comes to mind, more than anything else, is his stinginess. We picture him as this tight-fisted, miserly old grump, don't we? And, and when we, because of that, when we see people, or maybe even when we reflect on our own, um, our own uh, activities, when we see people being lacking generosity in some way or another, there's a good chance that we'll poke that person. And we might say to them, well, don't be such a Scrooge. Or perhaps when you think of Ebenezer Scrooge, you might think of his astonishing lack of empathy and compassion for those less fortunate. After all, he's the one who famously said, if the poor would rather die than seek help in the poorhouses, well, then they'd better do it. And decrease the surplus population. Scrooge definitely lacked compassion. He was a stingy man. But I think these these things are really only symptoms of something that was far more serious. A far more serious flaw. You see, I think Scrooge's main problem was that he was convinced that he was utterly self-sufficient. He took his exceeding wealth, his success, and his respected position in society as signs of his own virtue and of his own security and independence. And because of that, he lived his life as if he were immune to the ordinary cares and needs of the people in the world around him. But of course, if you're familiar with the story, you know that this was really nothing more than a self-delusion. And it would be laughable if it weren't so tragic. After all, of all the characters, when you think about it, of all the characters in Dickens' story, even the most pitiable ones like Bob Cratchit or Tiny Tim, Scrooge is the one most in need of the help of others, and yet he's blind to the depths of his own need. And so I think it's pretty ironic that his first name is Ebenezer. Ebenezer, Hebrew word that means a stone of help. You might remember from 1 Samuel 7 that the Israelites, they set up an Ebenezer between Mizpah and Shen, And they did so in order not to forget the Lord's help. They did it as a commemoration that the Lord had delivered them from the Philistines. And so this very name of this man, Ebenezer, this man who's in the most desperate situation, but also the one most blind to it, his very name points to his need. It points to the fact that he is in need of help from someone outside of himself. Well, friends, I think this problem that we see in Ebenezer, this self-delusion... This self-sufficiency. This is at the very heart of Jesus' rebuke of the Christians in Laodicea. And the Christians there, they desperately needed to hear what the Lord Jesus had to say to them. And so do we, maybe even particularly so. You see, many have suggested that this letter, of all the seven letters, this letter holds a particularly pointed message for modern day Christians. John Stott, for example, he said this. He said, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church of the 21st century than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, skin-deep, rather sentimental religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic like the laodiceans we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath in religion well let's turn our attention to this letter what did jesus need to say to the laodiceans what do we need to hear this morning well like we've seen in all six letters prior to this one the lord jesus he begins with an introduction and this time we hear him describe himself To the Laodiceans in verse 14, as the Amen and the beautiful and uh, the faithful and true witness and the beginning of God's creation. And there are a couple of things that really stand out to me about this self description. First of all, in calling himself the faithful and true witness, Jesus is perhaps, probably more than anything else, he's urging the Laodiceans to recognize his perfectly trustworthy and reliable character. And in doing so, he's urging them to receive his message and to submit to it as the truth they need to hear. And secondly, in calling himself the Amen and the beginning, Jesus is once again drawing on that vision that John had in chapter 1 of the Son of Man. After all, in verse seventeen, we don't hear Jesus call himself the Amen in the beginning, but we do hear himself. Uh, and we do hear him call himself the first and the last. And part of what he's doing there is he's he's drawing on that vision, and he's reminding the Laodiceans, as he did the other churches, that the one addressing them is the Lord's Messiah. He's the Son of David. He's the Son of God. He's the anointed one, the one, appointed, the one appointed to take care of their needs and to deliver them from their sin and misery. But I want you to notice, too, that Jesus doesn't just call himself the beginning. Instead, he calls himself the beginning of God's creation. And I think this is actually a really important self-description to give to the Laodiceans. You see, Tom Wright comments... On it in this way. He says Jesus is the one through whom God's world came to be. Yes. But he's also the one in whose resurrection the new creation has been launched. The cosmic plan, this cosmic plan puts the Laodicean lukewarmness into even more embarrassing perspective. Here is Jesus the Lord of the cosmos, and here you are, smug and self-satisfied. In other words, in describing himself as the beginning of God's creation, Jesus isn't simply pointing to his creative work at the beginning of the world. He's also laying claim to the work he's accomplishing because of our need in new creation He's identifying himself to the Laodiceans as the one appointed from the foundation of the world to recreate and make all the sin-stained and transitory things of this world new. He's reminding them that in order for them to share in this new creation, they must acknowledge their need to be transformed, and they must depend upon him to do it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Did you hear that? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, as the Lord continues uh, his message in verses 15 through 17, we hear him launch into an unqualified rebuke of the Laodiceans. And I say unqualified because unlike the other letters that we've seen so far, Jesus doesn't commend the works of the Laodiceans at all. Even in the nearly dead church in Sardis, there were at least a few commendable followers who hadn't soiled their garments, remember? But here in Laodicea, the situation is completely different. In fact, it had become so desperate that Jesus didn't mince any words, and instead, with strong, visceral imagery, in verse 16, he simply tells them that he's about to spit them out of his mouth. And he says this to a church. So what on earth was going on in Laodicea? that demanded such a forceful response from Jesus. Well, in a nutshell, I think the main issue was that the Christians there had become convinced that they were self-sufficient, that they needed nothing, that they needed no one, not even Christ. Yes, of course they paid lip service to their need for Christ. After all, they're Christians. They bear His name. But practically speaking, they had put their confidence in themselves. And you know, in doing so, they had adopted the delusional thinking of their unbelieving Laodicean neighbors. You see, at that time, the city of Laodicea was one of the most well-known and well-regarded cities in all of Phrygia. It was the banking capital of the region. It had a thriving wool industry whose raven black cloaks and carpets were prized throughout the valley. And it had a famous medical school that specialized in curing eye conditions with an ointment or a salve, the so-called Phrygian powder, which they produced. And the city's success in these areas had given it tremendous wealth. So much so that when an earthquake devastated the region in AD 60, Laodicea was the only city of all the cities that didn't apply to the Roman Senate for financial aid. Instead, they chose to rebuild with their own resources. And so it's not surprising that the citizens of Laodicea, puffed up by their own wealth and success, had come to think of themselves was completely self-sufficient, that they were in need of nothing and no one. But this was actually a delusion. You see, it was a well-known fact that the city of Laodicea, because it was seated on a high plateau, it didn't have sufficient natural resources, natural springs to provide water for its citizens. Instead, it had to rely on the resources and benevolence of its neighbors. And so it piped in water through aqueducts, most likely from the hot springs of Hierapolis in the north or the cold springs of Colossa in the south. But you see, when these waters arrived in Laodicea, rather than being hot, which made them useful in that culture for medicinal purposes, or cold which made them preferable, which was preferable for refreshment in the sweltering heat. The waters were merely lukewarm and lukewarm water was considered by many to be useless, if not repulsive. In fact, there's some evidence that it actually induced vomiting. It's, It's pretty ironic then that these puffed-up Laodiceans were boasting in their self-sufficiency. What denial! Forced to look outside of themselves to provide water for their most basic needs, all they could manage with all their wealth, all they could manage to secure was a product that no one really enjoyed or wanted to use. But you see, their wealth and success had blinded them to the reality of their pitiable situation. They couldn't acknowledge it because all they could see was their success and earthly riches. And friends, the problem among the Christians in Laodicea was that this same deluded, self-sufficient attitude had infiltrated their thinking. As one commentator put it, the pride of Laodicea was infectious. Christians caught the plague. Church members became smug and self-satisfied. And Jesus Christ needed to be blunt in exposing them. And this is why we hear Jesus say in verse 17, You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable poor, blind, and naked. Friends, did you hear that? What a devastating indictment to bring against those in Laodicea who claimed to bear the name of Christ, whose very identity as followers ought to have been centered first and foremost in an acknowledgement of their own spiritual poverty and need of a Savior. But like their unbelieving neighbors whose vision was clouded by earthly riches, the Laodicean Christians' share in the city's wealth and success had blinded them to the reality of their true spiritual condition. And so the ascended Lord Jesus, he exposed the depths of their folly as he gave gave them a diagnosis. He reminded them, as John Stock comments, that they were in fact beggars despite their banks, blind, despite the Phrygian powders of their medical school, naked, despite their clothing factor, factories. He reminded them that they might be able to manage without a Roman subsidy, but they cannot manage without his grace. And on top of that, the Lord Jesus warned them that if they persisted with such foolish thinking, And they would be as useless and repulsive to him as lukewarm water. And he would spit them out of his mouth. Friends, we need to listen carefully to what the Lord Jesus says to the Laodiceans here. We need to take his warning to heart. After all, we're all Christians living in one of the most affluent and successful countries on the planet. Many of us have been blessed with an abundance of material wealth and success. And and I think it's often easy, in light of these blessings, to become deluded in our thinking and to adopt the self-satisfied attitude of the Laodiceans. And friends, when we do that, we actually fall into idolatry. We make idols of our own hearts As Ezekiel says in chapter 28. In fact, we become like rebellious Ephraim, who said in Hosea 12 8, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that just like the Laodiceans, we're not immune to the temptation to find ultimate contentment and validation in the material comforts we enjoy. The Apostle Paul warned his readers in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, that those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Friends, did you hear that? He said, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. And that's because the careless, the careless pursuit and enjoyment of earthly riches often leads us to the rebellious and delusional belief that we are self-sufficient. And to forget instead the fundamental truth that we are but beggars, utterly dependent upon the Lord's grace. As Stan Porter said, when Christians think they are self-sufficient, they have walked away from Christ and His gospel, and they are useless and repulsive. So, friends, how do we avoid falling into this delusion? How do we resist the temptation to make idols out of our own hearts? Well, I want you to notice what Jesus says to the Laodiceans in verses 18 through 20. He tells them to buy refined gold that they might be rich, he tells them to buy white garments, not black ones, but white garments. That they might be clothed and unashamed. And he tells them to buy salve that they might see. And he tells them to buy all of these things, all of these symbols of heavenly inheritance and forgiveness of sin and spiritual enlightenment. He tells them to buy all of these things from him. And we need to be careful here, don't we? We don't want to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. You see, in telling them to buy these things, he's not implying that the Laodiceans or any of us for that matter, could actually purchase our salvation. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's leveraging their own material and commercial mindset. He's figuratively adopting the role of a merchant. And he's doing this so that he can reach them. He's doing this in order to gently lead them back to the truth. You see, the Laodiceans, as we've seen, they put their confidence in the material wealth and resources of the idolatrous society in which they were living. They were trusting in their own earthly riches. And as a result, they were in danger of facing God's judgment. The Apostle Paul gave a severe warning to the rich, saying to them in 1 Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And Jesus himself, he forcefully condemned those who would put their confidence in earthly riches. He said to them in Luke 6, 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And friends, the Christians in Laodicea, in their arrogant self-sufficiency, they needed to be reminded that the solution to their poverty, the solution to their nakedness and to their blindness, it lay outside of their own resources and must be found in Christ. And so the Lord Jesus, He counseled them to buy what they needed. From him. You know, it reminds me of what the Lord said to the Israelites in Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. He said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which isn't bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. He- hear that your soul may live. And you know, it's not dissimilar to what the Lord Jesus himself says at the end of, book of, of the book of Revelation. When he says in Re- Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Brothers and sisters, what, what a solution to the problem that we all face. To give such an invitation to those who have nothing to offer. It's incredible. It's nothing less than the full beauty of the gospel on display. And I, I love John Stott's take on this when he says, here is welcome news for naked, blind beggars. They are poor, but Christ has gold. They are naked, but Christ has clothes. They are blind, but Christ has eye ointment. Let them no longer trust in their banks, their Phrygian eye powders, and their clothing factories. Let them come to Him. He can enrich their poverty clothe their nakedness and heal their blindness. He can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world of which they have never dreamed. He can cover their sin and shame and make them fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. He can enrich them with life and life abundant. In a word, He can save them. He has died for them and risen again. Through His death, they can be cleansed. And through his living presence within, they can be changed. And you know, all of Jesus' counsel in these verses, his counsel for us to turn from trusting in ourselves and to come to him trusting instead that he alone has the resources to take care of our poverty and our nakedness and our blindness, all of this Really, it provides us with a beautiful picture of what it means to repent. And the fact that the Lord was willing to give such counsel to those who, blinded by their own self-sufficiency, were in effect rejecting Him, such willingness, this should demonstrate to us the extent of Jesus' patience and the astounding depth of His love. Just listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verses 19 and 20. He says, "Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me." James Resicky comments on it this way. He says, "Surprisingly, Laodicea appears to have barred Christ from its fellowship. And the closed door suggests the perilous depths to which the members of this congregation have descended. And yet, rather than entering this house like a thief in the night that we've seen in the other letters, in order to bring judgment upon them, here instead Jesus stands outside and he knocks And he offers table fellowship to all who would heed his knocking and open the door. And you know, this imagery, it's reminiscent of the parable that Jesus told in Luke 12 of the master who returned late at night from a wedding feast. In that parable, the servants who were promised the blessing of table fellowship with their master, in fact, those who were promised to be served a meal by their master, Those faithful ones were the ones who stayed awake, listening for his approach and ready to open the door when he knocked. And you know, perhaps too, given the frequent imagery of the bride and bridegroom in the book of Revelation, perhaps this picture of Jesus knocking on the door is is also meant to remind us of the intimate, intimate exchange of the bride and the beloved in the Song of Songs. Chapter five, verse two. After all, there we read this. I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Friends, what a picture of Christ's devotion to his people. And and this image of Jesus knocking on the door, it's meant to wake us up. It's meant to pull us away from the idols of our hearts and to cause us to forsake our self-reliance. And it's an invitation for us to fervently and wholeheartedly renew our fellowship with the one who alone has the means to provide our every need. And you know when we do these things when we confess our emptiness and utter dependence upon him, when we listen for his knocking and open the door to his leading, brothers and sisters, when we do these things as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord promises blessings beyond measure. Jesus says in verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Did you hear that? The Lord Jesus offers a share of His kingship to the faithful. And friends, these aren't the words of a charlatan. This isn't the shallow pledge of some would-be usurper of the throne. This is the trustworthy promise of Jesus, the faithful and true witness They're the words of the Lion of Judah whose victory has already been secured. They're the words of the slain Lamb whose blood has purchased your redemption. In Psalm 95, the psalmist says that the Lord is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Brothers and sisters, will you listen to what he has to say to you this morning? Will you confess your neediness? Will you reject the delusion of your own self-sufficiency? And will you place your confidence instead in the sufficiency of Christ, whose infinite and incomparable riches alone are sufficient to meet your need? Will you do these things unreservedly? so that you might be able to say in the words of one of my favorite hymns, Jesus, lover of my soul, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in Thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint. Heal the sick and lead the blind. Let's pray. Almighty God. We bow before you once again. We exalt you as the faithful and true one. Father, we ask, Lord, that you will use your words this morning, this letter to the Laodiceans. We ask, Lord, that you will use it to draw us closer to yourself. We ask, Lord, that you will use it to cause us to reject any notions of self-sufficiency and independence. Remind us, Lord, that we are but beggars. Remind us too, Lord, that you are abundant in mercy and grace. Father, we pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.